This is a Library Channel program from the UC San Diego Library. Visit us at www.uctv.tv slash library channel for interviews, author talks, and other programs that will inspire you to read, write, think, and dream. Today's panel was an idea that came to me because I'm obsessed with the personal roots of historical research and historical search for knowledge. Um, I think those of us who are in German Jewish history are all extremely aware that many decades ago we might have been on other sides of terrible divides, other sides of, of barbed wire, other sides of, of, of camp administrations. Uh, some of us may have died, some of us, uh, our ancestors may have died in some um, may have um, ruled with power and impunity. The fact that we come together many decades later as the descendants of the people who suffered and seek to gain historical knowledge and explanation has been a deeply, deeply meaningful aspect of being in German Jewish history for me over the last few decades. When I first went into the field, nice Jewish girls weren't supposed to learn German and were not supposed to go to Germany. So there was a little uh, adolescent defiance in my own uh, uh, embrace of German history. Since then, the term I always think about when I think about especially um, uh, people like Marguerite and, and, and Frank Bies, who will come in a few minutes, is the term Schicksalgemeinschaft, the community of fate. It doesn't mean that you're born from the same, quote, race or religion or tribe or family. It means that there's a central event in history or in politics that binds you together to look to see what happened with the twisted narrative of history and where did it go wrong. Um, explaining things that happened in the past, explaining fascism, explaining Hitler, very difficult. I expect to go to my deathbed and hope that my students will keep on working because I doubt that we'll have all the answers, although I hope to live long enough to <laughs> maybe give some answers. Explaining does not mean forgiving. And I think that's very important for those of us in the academy who spend all our time explaining. We all we get up in the morning, we read history books, we give history lectures, then we go home, we watch the History Channel for fun. We go on Google Images and look for you know pictures of Adolf Hitler. You know this is what we do all day long. We're not forgiving, but we are in a Schicksalgemeinschaft in which we are working together, and it has been an unbelievable joy for me to see. Week, month after month under Suzanne's amazing leadership with the help of people like John Minier from UCSD-TV, Mark Casamatis, who's been with us for all sorts of videoing, and Josh Stoltz, who's, who's making the video now, and all the wonderful people in the library uh, to work together on this project. Um, the only solace I can take from the fact that we haven't solved what caused the Holocaust is that someday the Israelis and the Palestinians, too, will sit down years after all the blood is shed and will seek a parallel understanding of each other's histories and will come to expand um, their understanding of history. So let me now turn to our first speaker, Mr. Brian Schottlander. I had a great joy of interlibrary loan, which was a total Brian story. I'm writing an article on Ferdinand LaSalle. He came from Breslau. So I order a book from interlibrary loan on the Jews of Breslau. All the pictures are of the Schottlander estate. And I called Brian and I said, Brian, you're a famous Breslauer. And he said, I know, I know. 
So Brian has been a wonderful partner. Uh, we've worked together from the very beginning, and he brings so many skills, so much power, so much knowledge, so much passion to this project. And in his biography, which I'm sure he's going to tell you, and I don't want to reveal his racial heritage because I feel it might be Nazi-esque to talk about it. <laughs> but I'll let him decide what he wants to share. Um, uh, I'll only say one thing that really struck me is so beautiful about his biography, which is that his parents met in 1945 in Munich, where they both worked for UNRWA, she in a secretarial position, and he as director of a TDP camp. Okay, you don't get more historical than that love affair, so we're glad they made Brian. Okay. No, thank you very much. I actually left out one, I was talking to my mother last night, left out one important detail in that small data point, and that is that they met on Valentine's Day. So love story indeed. Um, uh, my name's Brian Schottlander. I'm the university librarian um, here at UC San Diego and have been for the last 15 years or so. Uh, and have been extremely pleased and gratified to partner with um, Deborah and Suzanne and Suzanne's predecessors on um, bringing this vision of um, a Holocaust living history workshop to life. And, and I think uh, all of you being in attendance today is a, is a beautiful um, testament to our, to our efforts to have having done so. Um, my interests in, in the, this workshop do very much date to my having grown up in the sh shadow of the Holocaust. Um, I'm old, so I was born in 1952 um, in Munich, um, and my, uh, my father and mother uh, had met in Munich as... as um, Deborah has shared, in 1945. Now, you might well wonder, um, what was an American GI doing in Munich in 1945? Yeah, not so hard to figure that out. Um, what was an English woman from Nottingham doing in, in Munich in 1945? Uh, my father was uh, born in Beuthen, Germany, in um, the 1920s, grew up in Breslau, uh, as the son of a Jewish mother and a Protestant father. Um, in those days and at that point in time, it was not uncommon um, for the dad in the family um, to strike out and seek his fortune and having attained his fortune, call for his family. Um, and my grandfather, whom I never knew, um, did just that. Uh, and ended up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And um, in 19, in August of 1940, my grandmother, uh, who by then had a 14-year-old son, um, wrote to him, uh, to, to her husband, and said, uh, whether you found your fortune or not, we're coming. Um, and so they left, emigrated to the States, um, my grandmother found a job uh, two weeks within arriving and never worked anywhere else. Uh, my father, on the other hand, um, turned seven, the minute he turned 17, he lied about his age and joined the American Army. And the American Army, in its infinite wisdom, thought to itself, huh, here's a guy who knows German. Let's send him to Germany. Uh, 
um, which they did. Uh, he made a stop on the way out of the United States at the um, Defense Language Institute up in Monterey, where he learned Russian, um, and um, spent the next two years um, in Germany as part of the um, Army Intelligence Corps. Uh, when the war ended, he became the military attache to UNRWA. And for those of you who may not be familiar with that acronym, that stands for the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, uh, which was a very short-lived group. It, it actually had a very short life. Um, but it was a life that lasted long enough for my mother to meet my father. Um, my mother, who is English, as I said, um, and her very best friend, a Scotswoman, uh, who is my godmother and who, ironically, now lives in San Diego, um, decided when the war ended that they, they wanted to sort of help put Europe back together, as you know, young people did in those days. And so my mother applied for two UNRWA positions, um, one in the south of Germany, in the American zone, and one in the north of Germany, in the English zone, um, and of the two, for reasons she cannot remember, except she thinks they may be related to how you got paid, she selected the American Zone one, uh, went to work for UNRWA, and across the street uh, from where she worked in UNRWA headquarters, there was a German school, and I've tried to figure out what it might be or have been, um, that had been taken over um, by UNRWA uh, and was functioning as a displaced persons camp. And my father administered that camp and was responsible for repatriating people to Germany, um, many of whom came from Eastern Europe, the Ukraine in particular. Um, eventually, they ended up having children. I was the oldest of those children, and um, I have three brothers. We were all born in Germany and raised in Germany. I lived, I personally lived in Germany until 1965 and came to this country um, at the age of 12. And my, my memories of, of growing up in Germany are, are influenced by two things in particular. Um, when we lived in Wiesbaden, which is where we lived um, before we came to the States in the 60s, um, we lived uh, on a dead-end street, uh, and we lived in this really nice three-story German apartment building um, that was owned by a guy who I had no clue was actually one of the largest construction developers in Germany, a man named Heinz Mosch. Uh, and his daughter, Dagi Mosch, who you know we knew as six-year-olds, um, is now one of the wealthiest women in Germany. She runs a huge construction empire. Um, but even more interestingly, at the end of this dead-end street um, was a great big wall. And behind this great big wall, uh, on our side of which grew lots of blueberries, I remember that vividly, and we would go steal these blueberries. But on the other side of the wall was the Henkel estate. Uh, now, Henkel is the great German champagne company. It has, has been in business for years and years and years. Um, what I didn't know, though, is that during the war, the Henkel estate, which, which was a magnificent place and, and is to this day, you can look it up online, 
um, had been taken over by the foreign minister for the Nazi government, um, Joachim von Ribbentrop, who was executed at Nuremberg. Um, I was a kid. I didn't know any of that. I didn't find that out until about 40 years later um, when I was having a conversation with uh, the president of the largest book dealer uh, in Germany, a man named Knut Dorn, who had spent his entire life in Wiesbaden, which is where his company is located. And I mentioned living at the end of the street where the Henkel estate was. And he said, well, you know, that was von Ribbentrop's headquarters, which I did not. Um, the second memory that I, that I uh, have of that time is I went to German schools for the first four grades and kindergarten. And my mother, who was English, um, began to become concerned that, as she put it quaintly, I was going to become a German, quote unquote. And so she pulled me out of German schools and um, sent me instead to the American schools that by then were pretty common on American military bases. And so I spent through the seventh grade going to one of the, these American schools. And one of the things that I remember very, very vividly, and I and it came back to me many years later, was being called a Nazi by these American kids because I had gone to German school and I spoke German really well, and I suppose when I first started, I seemed pretty German to them. Um, and really taking offense at that, um, really uh, doing what I could, could in the way of fisticuffs and other things to refute that. Um, and then I, I really never thought about it again until many years later when I was going through a diversity workshop. I remember this vividly. And this particular person who was leading this workshop had us all line up in the middle of the room. And then she went through a series of questions and she said, if you have ever been discriminated against because you are gay, please move over to that part of the room. Or because you are African-American, please move over to that part of the room. Or because you're a woman, please move over to that part of the room. Blah, 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 blah. And at the end of this exercise, who's standing in the middle of the room? <laughs> Me. The white guy from Germany who everybody discriminated against because they thought I was a Nazi. Not a question she thought to ask. That's what, that's what my experience of growing up in the Holocaust was like. Okay, well, lots of food for thought there. Thank you, Brian, for sharing, as we say in California. Okay, uh, the next speaker on the panel is Professor Marguerite Freulich, and it gives me particular joy to introduce her because she is our visiting DAD professor, Professor Concha, who's in the audience from the literature department, and Professor Beese will be coming in in a few minutes, we hope, if he can get out of his class early without shortchanging the poor students. Um, Marguerite has been visiting us already for three years, and I believe it will be here for, for some time into the future. She's been teaching a wide range of courses to tremendous success, everything from um, Jews and Hollywood and Nazis, Holocaust as public history, all kinds of fascinating courses. I have the honor of having many students in my classes who say, oh, guess whose course I just took, and I loved it, Professor Freilich. So um, that has been really great. Um, among her many accomplishments, the one that really, really, really um, 
rent my heartstrings here, uh, was after graduating from high school, she traveled to Israel and spent time as a volunteer on a kibbutz founded by German and Austrian immigrants in the 1920s, run by Hashomer HaTzair. Um, uh, so I thought that was a really interesting part of her history that I did not know. She has a PhD in German literature and studies from Cornell. She then returned to Germany, taught at the University of Leipzig, literally watched the wall come down, and maybe you'll choose to ask her about that. Um, worked for several years as the director of studies at the Lutheran Academy of Arnoldsheim, where she brought films, she brought speakers. She's a whiz at all kinds of uh, public memorializations, and it's been a wonderful opportunity to have her here in San Diego, and she's now going to share her personal history. All right, thank you very much for introducing me and thank you very much um, for um, yeah, coming to listen. Now, Deborah asked me uh, and asked all of us to prepare sort of a little introduction and uh, we didn't talk about it beforehand. So what I'm going to start saying is not entirely sort of compatible with what um, Brian Schottlander just said, but just sort of some biographical information. I grew up in Frankfurt, Germany. That's about 20 miles the most from Wiesbaden. I'm slightly younger than you are. Actually, she's a good much. deal younger. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so how should I start, I thought. Um, the very first time I came to the United States, this was exactly three months and three weeks after the former American president, Ronald Reagan, had accepted an invitation by former German chancellor, Helmut Kohl, to visit a cemetery in a town, German town called Bitburg. Now, this stirred up enormous controversy both in Germany, in Israel, and certainly here also in the United States. I see some of you are nodding because you remember the, this um, event. So Bitburg was a cemetery of soldiers, and among the many graves, there were about 49 graves, uh, if I'm not mistaken, by um, Waffen-SS, so the combat, combat arm of the SS, and that's why that was so controversial. And all this, to me, back then, smacked very much of revisionism, and it just felt so wrong. The Ramones, they sang a song Bonzo goes to Bitburg, sort of variating um, a title of a 1950s film in which Ronald Reagan, uh, the actor, had starred in. Now, there's one line in this song that goes, that's sort of the protest against the former American president saying, um, you are a politician, don't become one of Hitler's children. Now, with all due respect, at that time, I probably wouldn't have defined myself as one of Hitler's children. After all, Hitler didn't have any biological children, and Magda Goebbels uh, murdered her own. And also, when I was growing up, like my interest in Hitler and his entourage was limited. Certainly, we learned about him and the entourage in school as sort of the incarnation of evil. But what I was far more interested, and I think that was 
like many of my contemporaries, was really to understand how did German society at large and on the everyday level with the ordinary Germans, how did they contribute to making this happen, to make the Holocaust happen? So that was sort of my key question at the time. So even though I wouldn't have defined it um, that way at the time, I was embarked on a project to understand um, who am I, where do I come from, and where do I want to go to, both on an individual, on a personal level, but also on a collective national level. Even though the term nation wasn't really part of my active vocabulary. Um, so the way I grew up, um, some of the things that have been said about German society and which I find true, I can Nevertheless, I cannot necessarily confirm on a personal level. Like the notorious silence that's often been talked about, um, I did not experience this. Um, I grew up in a family that, where there was an abundance of talk about the Holocaust, about um, uh, national socialism, and critical thought, and also... Um, uh, well, we could say I did not only grow up in the shadow of the Holocaust, but perhaps also under the spell of the 1968ers, who by that time I was going to high school had stepped into the limelight of um, German society and were trying to change it by confronting the past, by really asking hard questions. So... In, in a lot of ways, it was a very um, yeah, open-minded period where all, all what was repressed still in German society was um, people were trying to uncover it, to really uh, confront it. And, um, but I do very vividly remember it was also a highly emotional period. Whenever there was talk about the Holocaust or National Socialism, it immediately tr triggered enormous emotions and affects. Um, as a graduate student here in the United States, I learned that uh, 1979, early 1979, when the... Um, um, the American miniseries uh, Holocaust was broadcast on German TV, that this was a decisive turning point within German society. It was like a watershed that opened up public discourse about what was still repressed in German society. Uh, now, I would, I would say, yes, that is, certainly, that is certainly true. And I do remember sitting in front of the television and watching this. Now, while I have very little memory of the miniseries with Meryl Streep as such, I do very vividly remember the, um, the public discussion on broadcast on television where every um, German was basically invited to call in. There were telephones and you could call in and contribute and comment. And 
the phones wouldn't stop ringing until yeah, midnight. So I was listening, paying attention to this. I didn't realize that I was sort of participating in a historical significant um, moment at the time. Okay, let's go back a little bit to the United States and the debate. So after my first year as a graduate exchange student here in the United States, I moved on to earn my PhD. And at that point, the so-called historian debate was in full swing. And my professors here in the United States were heavily invested in this controversy, and um, one of them was even publishing um, a special issue of a journal where all the relevant texts were being translated into English and made available to um, an English-speaking academic audience. Now, what was the historian's debate about? It was about the significance of the Holocaust within German history and also contemporary German society. And so on the, and there were these, on the one hand you had these conservative historians who were dry, drawing a comparison between um, um, the, the Nazi crimes and Stalin's crimes, and also basically trying to argue that the Holocaust should not have this really singular position within German history and German culture, and that there are so many other things in German history that one can be proud of, and, and, and. So whereas the other side who rejected this, and Jürgen Habermas is probably the best known of those, um, they were really afraid that the significance of the Holocaust and the way um, Germans remembered it would fade out, would, really, would diminish, and strongly contested this stance of comparison between um, Hitler's crimes and Germans, Germany's crimes and Stalin's crimes. And also what Habermas and those who, um, who argued against this, um, what they were fearing that the Holocaust would become historicized. So one historical event among many, like, I don't know, Napoleon's wars or so, that students would learn in the future. Now one thing um, that Habermas and the critics, um, um, what they were wrong about was that the interest in the Holocaust has not diminished in future generations. And I can say this um, from my experience here with students at UCSD, and some of them are here today in the audience, but also um, from my experience with young people in Germany that now many decades later know the interest in the Holocaust in learning about this history is very, very strong. Um, now, one thing that Habermas um, and the others predicted and feared that the Holocaust would become historicized, well, that has happened inevitably because of the time that has elapsed since. And 
today, young people who grow up have very, very little possibility to speak to someone, to speak um, to someone who experienced and suffered um, from the Holocaust. Okay, I want to fast forward. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of stuff that we can um, discuss about. Fast forward to the mid-1990s when I was teaching at Leipzig University in the former East Germany and sort of witnessing the transformation of um, the two German states into the unified Germany. The, the class I was teaching was a class on, on post-war German culture in the two German states, making comparing the developments in the two states. This was a very international class that I was teaching. So while most of the German students were from the former East Germany, there were many, about a third of my students in the classroom who were from other European countries who had come on European exchange uh, programs. And among those, there were many French students, very well-educated French students from Paris studying political science, international relations. Um, uh, and French students, that means the descendants of parents or grandparents who had immigrated from the former French colonies to France. And whenever I started speaking about the Holocaust and its significance in post-war German culture, East or West, there was an intervention. And some of the French students, um, they wanted to talk about the war in Algeria. And it, this moment, it was like almost like sort of an, um, an inner reflex of mine, like a wall inside myself went up. Sort of, and I was sort of silently speaking to him, saying to myself, no, 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 this must not be. This must not be. The Holocaust is singular, and I have to teach here everyone in the classroom that this is the case before we can talk about anything else. Now, in retrospect, what I would say is I was lacking some really intercultural competence and skills <laughs> that are very necessary um, when we talk about the Holocaust or teach it in the 21st century. Um, so that maybe there needs to be a space that allows for other perspective, other grievances, um, other histories to be incorporated in such a discourse without the fear that I experienced in the 1990s that that would somehow diminish the relevance and contest the relevance of the Holocaust. Um, okay, one more fast forward and then I'll stop. Um, April 11th, 2015, I was here in San Diego um, watching the news coverage about the commemoration, the 70-year uh, anniversary of the liberation of the concentration camp um, in Buchenwald, um, the camp that was liberated um, by Americans. And among the survivors who are still alive and who go there on an annual basis. Um, there was one man with the name Bertrand Herz, 
um, who was a, one of the 900 children, Jewish children, um, incarcerated in Buchenwald and who survived. And so what I saw on the media coverage was he was speaking and um, sort of remembering and basically in saying that, or giving sort of as his legacy to the future generation that what we must um, fight is any any experience of exclusion and fight for tolerance. Now, and I think that's really the point, and I think Germany has come a long way from a, an utterly hostile, aggressive, compassionless country that made such a terrible crime the systematic mass murder of European Jews, um, Sinti and Roma, homosexuals, political opponents, possible, to a country that is very compassionate and has, has and shows empathy, especially when it comes to listening uh, to the the victims. And living here in the United States. I observe the people around me of all age groups, and I often ask myself, America, how did you do it, or how do you do it, that it seems to me that every child um, growing up here in America and going through the American school system learns this compassion and respect for the other that I think is the basic ingredient for an open um, society that we need. So, Marguerite, I expect your uh, offer from the State Department <laughs> to be the next <laughs> ambassador from the United States to Germany will be in the mail tomorrow. So, thank you very much. So, it's with great pleasure that I welcome my uh, colleague in German history, uh, Professor Frank Bies, who's had a very busy afternoon from the Marina Memorial to the MMW classroom and, and, and has graced us with our time. I met Frank the first week I came here and it was a sense of homecoming because we knew all the same historians. We read every one of the same books and we've had great fun over the years. We've supervised uh, several dissertations. We have several more in the works this spring. Uh, we've revised the German history sequence. We've debated about graduate students. Frank is the author of a wonderful book um, called Aftermath. My neighbor, who's German, German-Hungarian, read this book with great alacrity, and when she found out that Frank was staying at my house while I was sabbatical, on sabbatical she started bringing him over all the German-Hungarian pastries that no one on my street appreciates. <laughs> so that was a great mitzvah for me to bring my neighbor and, and Frank together. He's a very cool intellect, Professor Bies, and um, there's no there the sentimentality or the emotion that Marguerite discussed um, a few minutes ago is 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 not apparent in his visage or his delivery or his discourses. Uh, maybe today he'll he'll show more of that. Uh, he's the baby on the panel, born in 1966. Um, his key political experience was the peace movement of the early 90s. Uh, did a civil service instead of military uh, service, uh, a great example of, of, of the new Germany, um, and has been living in the United States with many degrees, many books, many honors since 1991. Frank. 
Thank you, Deborah. Um, actually, your neighbor was the first moment when German history was really good for something, you know, to, get those, uh, to get those pastries. So that was really something. Um, so, um, you know, I'm a little bit at a disadvantage because I, of course, don't know what, what the previous speakers here have said. And, uh, you know, I apologize if I basically repeat what uh, you've already heard. I indeed just came from my class um, teaching, actually had to shorten it a little bit to, to come here. And, you know, for me, the challenge of this panel is, uh, and probably for you, for you, Margaret, as well, and, and Brian, is to divorce my personal recollection from my professional identity as a historian. I mean, I study post-war Germany. One of my interests are the sort of lingering after effects of war and genocide, the history of memory in post-war Germany. So I find it sort of difficult to figure out what is my personal recollection, what is my sort of professional expertise um, in this field. So um, I would say that, uh, you know, the question is here, what does it mean to um, grow up in the shadow of the Holocaust? And my sense is, and I think this is uh, pretty similar to what Margaret said, um, that this shadow of the Holocaust was actually not present for a long time. Um, it was certainly not uh, sort of explicitly present. And I think it might have even taken longer um, than the broadcast of this Holocaust miniseries for the Holocaust to become really deeply implicated or deeply um, sort of um, a central part of German public life and uh, political culture. When I went to high school in the 1980s, a lot of my teachers were 68ers, you know, people who came out um, of age in the student movement, and they were quite willing to talk about fascism to talk about uh, National Socialism, they were not so great in talking about really the Holocaust per se. And I think that was uh, still the sort of uh, dominant view in the 1980s. When I went to university in um, Germany in the late 80s and early 90s, I don't think there was any course just on the Holocaust um, at the places where I studied. And I think this was uh, quite typical still for this um, period. Most of the Holocaust historiography actually came from this country. It was written by American historians, not by um, Germans. I mean, this has changed now. Now um, in Germany, too, there's a vibrant Holocaust uh, historiography. And I think it's really um, important to realize how central the Holocaust now is for German self-understanding. You all probably have uh, heard or maybe even have seen this uh, memorial for the murdered Jews of Europe, right in the center of Berlin, right next to the German parliament, the Reichstag. And I always tell my students, you have to imagine this would be the equivalent to having a memorial to slavery or to the genocide of Native Americans right next to the Capitol in Washington, right next to the White House. So this says something about how important the Holocaust now is for German um, self-understanding. Um, but um, this you know, was, was a very gradual um, development, and I think a fairly recent development. I would say maybe the last sort of uh, 30 years or so, 20, 30 years. Um, now, um, when, when I was growing up, as I said, this was really not the case. I think I had a very sort of abstract understanding of the Holocaust, and what I especially didn't have, I grew up in a fairly sort of provincial um, region in southern Germany, I never had any conscious contact with a Jewish person. So, you know, I had sort of a sort of abstract idea of, you know, European Jews and German Jews and what happened to them, but I, I, I don't think I ever sort of consciously talked 
to a Jewish person until I met you, Deborah. No, no, until I came, <laughs> until I came, until I came to this country in 1998, and that came with a lot of uh, sort of uncertainty. And I just want to tell you one brief um, anecdote. Maybe you've um, heard this. I was an exchange student at Washington University in um, St. Louis, uh, starting in 1991, and there I realized that uh, almost all of my professors were Jewish. And, you know, they were great people. I mean, I had uh, really excellent relationships with them. And one day, just before the holidays, I walked home with one of my professors. And just before I left, I said, Merry Christmas, Professor Weinfeld. <laughs> and I walked home, and on my way home, I realized, oh, my God. I just committed a huge mistake. And I actually went through the trouble and called up Professor Beinfeld to apologize and I said, well, you know, I know it's not a holiday for you. And he said, what do you mean? It is a holiday for me. And the conversation ended by him saying, Frank, you worry too much. <laughs> so, so, but I think it shows some of the, you know, the, the sort of um, difficulty of, uh, of dealing with this. And I think this was uh, probably also um, quite, uh, quite typical for um, even um, Germans of my, um, of my generation um, now, in the sort of run-up to this event, Deborah told us we should think about to what extent we feel what guilt and shame for what has happened as Just Germans. Just having, asking. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I know, and you, know, you, you were wondering whether I would talk about emotions, <laughs> so here you go. Um, and I have to say, um, I find it very difficult, certainly to experience guilt, um, because uh, you know, guilt is a very sort of individualized um, Emotion. I think there was this famous book by this German philosopher, Karl Jaspers, who sort of distinguished between different kinds of guilt. He said legal guilt, you know, if you actually had committed a crime, political guilt, if you had uh, somehow sort of supported the Nazi regime, and moral guilt, if you were somehow sort of present when it happened. Now, you know, none of these really um, apply to people of later generations, so I find this uh, concept of guilt not very helpful Shame is probably um, a sort of um, maybe more appropriate term, and I'm sure that um, quite a lot of Germans experience shame for what has happened in Germany just by the fact of having grown up in a society that um, had produced um, this, um, this genocide. But even that, I find, um, is more something that applies to sort of um, individuals and it's very difficult to sort of uh, assume that there was some sort of collective shame. I think the better term is really responsibility. And this is also what, uh, you know, this philosopher that Margaret mentioned, Jürgen Habermas, has uh, argued should be the sort of um, response to that, the sort of responsibility to, you know, cultivate the memory of the Holocaust and to make sure that it remains present in the sort of German um, imagination um, so this, um, I think, is, is, strikes me as, a, as something that I can identify with and that I um, probably also um, experience in some fashion, um, which, however, leaves the question, and that's what I would like to end with, and this sort of echoes what, uh, what Margaret said, um, this question, so what really is the significance of the memory of the Holocaust? Why should we actually keep talking about the Holocaust? Um, and, and here, I think, what's, um, what's important, and this is perhaps also morally problematic, but um, I think what's important is to make the Holocaust a less national story. 
um, and to make it a more sort of universal story. Because I think a lot of the Holocaust memory to this day in Germany sort of monumentalizes it. It's this sort of uh, unprecedented event, unlike everything else. Um, and it's a specifically German event, which in many ways, of course, um, was true. But I think this is a sort of narrative that uh, perhaps uh, does not resonate so well. Even in Germany, where you now have an immigrant population of uh, you know, 10 or 15 percent. So I think the question has to be, how can perhaps a young Turkish person relate to the history of the Holocaust? Or even you know, teaching in San Diego, how can the history of the Holocaust be relevant for undocumented immigrants in this country? And that's what I mean by sort of um, you know, making it more universal. And I actually think this historian's debate in that respect uh, was sort of counterproductive because the result of it was this sort of assertion of the singularity of the Holocaust. And I actually see this, and you, know, you may disagree with me and we can argue about this, I see this as a sort of uh, conceptual and ultimately also a moral um, dead end. Um, so, um, yeah, that's what I would, um, you know, I think, and I think it's important to sort of show how the Holocaust was actually made possible by very small things, by sort of the denial of empathy, by the sort of um, break in the human bonds of uh, solidarity with others, by the failure to accept and recognize difference. I mean, it strikes me that these are sort of the sort of aspects of the Holocaust that we have to, to emphasize and sort of make clear that this was one case in which... Uh, um, you know, these sort of small beginnings turned into something um, utterly horrific and catastrophic. But, but it's important to remember, you know, the, the beginnings um, and to kind of um, see the relevance of the Holocaust in, in those aspects. Okay. okay. Well, thank you, Frank. Okay, I'm going to shift maybe back to, I'm, I'm interested in asking a question about growing up and this stems actually from a conversation that I had with Frank, so maybe I'll direct my question to the other two. And, and I'm wondering, to what extent did you feel a sense of national identity growing up? Or was that something after World War II and after the Holocaust, was that bankrupt? And, and if you did feel some sort of national connection with Germany, what did that look like? So uh, I'll respond to that um, because it was very much part of my response to being called out by American students as as a Nazi, because my response internally and externally was not no, I'm an American. It was no, I'm a German, which in my mind, even at that age, was very different from being a Nazi. Don't even ask me why, but it just felt fundamentally different. Um, I guess because I was surrounded by by people who hadn't been part of that. And, and so to me, there was a great distinction between those two things, which was not the case for, for Americans. For Americans, all Germans were Nazis. Um, well, um, yeah, growing up in Germany, I don't think it was sort of an active concept. 
I, like probably most other people, became very aware of being German once I traveled abroad. Um, and maybe one, yeah, one incident that I could um, share with you. When I was 17, I was one of these Euro teens uh, who bought train tickets in the summer and traveled across Western uh, Europe, e eager to explore other countries. And this kind of eagerness was more probably also a way of escaping any kind of national nationalist trap um, and so I was there with my, the, my travel companions uh, 17 year old sitting in the park of Sacré-Cœur beautiful summer day in July and there was this elderly la uh, French lady um, um, sort of coming by and sitting next to us. And she started a conversation with us in French, and she was asking where we were from, and somehow she thought that we were British. And we said, no, um, we're Germans. And she stopped and sort of mumbled something that later on I realized she said, Bosch. And she got up, and she left. And so harsh confrontation but that makes you then think about like what was the role that Germans during the Nazi period really played in France Bosch oh that's a well, well I don't know what the English it was it's a derogatory term for Germans. I think gringos probably wouldn't really capture it, but something. Crowd. Crowds. Crowds. Yeah. Frank, Frank, did you want to but, respond yeah. to anything that's been said the last few questions? Um, I guess I have to say I didn't want to feel German. I didn't feel particularly German. And I think that was an expression of the sort of post-war culture that this was um, de-emphasized. Um, so, um, you know, maybe I experienced more guilt and shame than I'm ready to admit. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think national identification was uh, looked at uh, very suspiciously. Um, and even coming here, I think uh, I was at first kind of taken aback by the open patriotism of Americans. You know, I mean, to put a flag, a German flag, in front of your house in Germany, I mean, people would think you must be a neo-Nazi or so. You know, it's totally, I think to this day, the only moment now when it's done is during, you know, the World Cup or so, in with relax to soccer. You know, that sort of makes it possible. But other than that, um, you know, no. Strange reversals of fortune. A friend of mine, a colleague in the history department once said, it was the greatest lack of luck, bad luck, to be a Jew before the Holocaust, before the war. But it was really, it was very bad luck to be a German after the war. And I think there's a certain flip profundity to that. Okay, more questions from students. Okay, we'll take two more questions from anyone. Yeah, um, um, this is probably the last um, you know, generation of people who were really immersed in the Holocaust. Um, so, just in response to, to this uh, perspective that was put forward, so um, we're not going to have any more this side of the story. We're going to have much more the unpassionate theoretical approaches of historians arguing uh, whether this was a singularity or this could be, you know, 
or should be looked at the roots of the germination. Uh, and, um, but it's also going to be a challenge, and, and, and I'm coming to my question in a second. It, it, it's a challenge because people don't... Uh, um, I'm thinking about there is a growing number of young Israelis that are moving to Berlin these days. It's cheaper. There's no military conflict. There's some anti-Semitism here and there, but, uh, you know, less than what... Uh, people were warning them about. So uh, uh, they don't want to talk about the Holocaust. Right? And as I think they are representative of many others. How do you think historians are supposed to stand to this challenge uh, when there are no longer people who are immersed, where people want to forget? Um, what is the responsibility of historians? How does that reflect in your discourse? Have at it, historians. Well, one comment I would make is that this is really, in a way, about the rise and fall, the rapid rise and fall of intense nationalisms. Think about what we're talking about between the time period of 1918 and 1933. You saw the rise of militant Nazi Nazi version of nationalism. 1945 to to the present, you see the rise of a dynamic Jewish nationalism. A lot of us look at the similarities between different kinds of nationalism, citizenship-based nationalism, blood and soil-based nationalism, race-based nationalism, religion-based nationalism. They come in many varieties. And one of the responses to what, to what Tal very wisely said about the Israelis migrating to Berlin is it's, it's the greatest irony of, of the whole cycle, that people who were raised in an intensely Jewish response to the catastrophical genocide are returning to the place where it started. You might say, this is history come full circle in the most beautiful way, that, as in this panel, that individuals of passion and intellect and feeling are are not willing to participate in blood and soil nationalism anymore. Maybe that will lead to a change in world politics. Well... You know, if I can address the sort of methodological challenge that you that you raised, I mean, I think with every historical problem, we have these two sort of um, tasks. On the one hand, to empathize and identify with our subjects, and on the other hand, then to step back and, you know, be more analytical. And I think that's true for the history of the Holocaust as well, and the testimonies of the eyewitness are absolutely essential for you know every history of the Holocaust but um, most we have to write about most historical periods without living eyewitnesses and soon this will be the case um, with respect to the Holocaust um, as well and then we just have to rely on the sort of mass of testimony that we, that we have inherited about this period just like about any other period. And, you know, there's, that's why it's so great that there's the, um, you know, the video archive that uh, Steven Spielberg does. I think at Yale there's a similar project where this sort of testimony is preserved for the future because it's going to be, you know, an essential research for people writing the history of the Holocaust in 
um, in 200 years if we haven't you know, succumbed to global warming or some other catastrophe by then. Yeah, I answer with a little anecdote from a film, from an Israeli film called, entitled Made in Israel um, by Ari Falman. Maybe many of you know his the film he made after that, um, Waltz with Bashir. Uh, Made in Israel is not that well known. and It's a bit cynical. And, so, and the story is about um, set in some unknown future, uh, at the border between um, northern Israel and um, Lebanon, yeah, and the, when the na- last Nazi is caught, and the Israeli police is supposed to take over, but there's this like kind of group there that's being paid by someone, and they're sort of suspicious that the Israeli authorities would handle it the right way, so they take over and capture this last Nazi who had been in hiding somewhere, presumably in Lebanon or elsewhere. And so these younger people, and one of them is a Jewish immigrant from Russia, and her companion. They're sort of, you know, facing with the weapon and start talking to him. Uh, and tr- they're trying to communicate with him what has happened over the years with regard to, like, how people make sense of this history. And somehow they can't communicate because he had been in hiding and had missed everything that went on. And so the young woman says to him, then, Schindler's List. Don't you know? Schindler's List. But the last Nazi has missed out on this film. So in other words, it shows you, and that ties in with what Frank said, how much more significant um, all these media representations of the Holocaust are, whether they are fictional or whether they are documentary um, testimonies. And so one of my tasks, the way I see it as a historian and film scholar, is to create an awareness of the construction also of the image and to show how like fiction relates to fact um, and things like this. But I think media representations have become and will become um, more crucial um, yeah, in the years to come. Okay. So I want to thank you all for coming. It's been much food for thought. And uh, thank you. See you next time.